Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Praise the Lores podcast. And welcome to the program, people. We have made it to 20 episodes here on the Praise the Lores podcast. And today I have a very special guest, as always. Uh, it's actually a former teacher of mine, and his name is Stephen Kelleher. Mr. Kelleher, I'll do that with manners, obviously. Uh-huh. How are you, sir? I am well, sir. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Of course. Uh, so you are, as I introduced, a teacher, but you are also now an author. Well, I'm very, uh, among uh, the other things that I'm happy about so far as the book goes, uh, I'm pleased that I finally broke the seal. You know, I've been teaching for 20 years, so by some measure I should have 20 books on the show. Uh, quite a lot of teachers talk about writing a book, but you kind of say you're going to do a thing and you understand that you have the summer months to do it. And then frequently by the time summer rolls around, you sit around the backyard fire with a bunch of teachers and everyone says what book they're going to write. And then nobody does. And we all go back to work. You know? <laughs> so uh, finally, uh, I managed to sort of put my money where my mouth was and at least get one done. So I was very happy about that. What inspired you to write the book? What inspired me to write Felix the Red? Um, it's hard to get a measure of how long it took me to write the book. That's frequently something people are interested in because, again, as a full-time teacher, I was really just on summer writing. So uh, it sounds, it makes a good story to say it took me five years to write this book. But the wow. truth it was really... July and August of each of those years, you know. So if I had had unlimited time, maybe I could have cranked it back out in, you know, a year. Uh, but anyway, I know, I remember I began writing it uh, the summer of 2016. Uh, and uh, my daughter had left for school uh, the previous fall. And my mother passed away the January before. So I think it was a bit of a sort of empty nest, you know, thing. Um, and uh, but also, if you remember, in twenty summer twenty sixteen was the previous to last presidential race, and uh, no winners or losers obviously had been decided by summer. But I remember uh, turning on the television and just having a lot of despair for the options, you know. Everything seemed very acrimonious. Didn't seem like there was anyone prepared to lead us towards our, you know, better angels, as it were. So I remember uh, my daughter was away and my mom had passed. I was feeling a little blue. I was living alone out in Brooklyn. And I was watching the television like everybody else does and wondering who was going to be the next president. But really just kind of feeling... Like we had uh, lost that sense of, you know, e pluribus unum. And so I remember sitting down and saying, I'm going to write a book about a hero. And I've, I've made other attempts to write these books and they all fall short or have felt fallen short. And um, it was the first time I had ever said, given myself that mandate that this book is going to be about a hero. I needed a hero in my life. I was a bit uh, sad and lonely. But again, the television kept giving me to believe that everybody deserved a better uh, option than the ones on the offing. So I was sort of searching around for what that would mean to me or what that would mean in you know 2016, a hero. And I had to search a long time. And it went down many, many layer, levels and layers, I suppose, uh, until I just decided to tell the story of a heroic ferret. Because Felix the Red is the story, in fact, of a ferret who is red because he has uh, an alopecia condition. He's a hairless ferret. And um, the challenge I decided to set for myself is... If I can actually tell a cohesive, incredible story wherein a hairless ferret proves to be the hero, 
well, then, if the parable of what that meant held together, then just about anybody else might be one, too. Like, it might apply to everybody else, you know. I think some of my writing in the past, I was trying, uh, writing more from my own sort of particular personal experience. I discovered with Felix the Red that it was very liberating to settle on this animal parable instead so that a I couldn't inadvertently wind up hurting anybody's feelings with whatever opinions I might have you know uh, ventured in the form of my fiction because uh, I didn't want to do that I didn't want to add to that sort of acrimonious air out there um, so I figured I, I couldn't hurt anybody's feelings, but also if people read the story and they were moved by the story, then it didn't matter who they were, man, woman, black or white, you know, because you're not moved by an animal parable because you believe in the end that there are all these virtuous ferrets in the world, of course. Uh, you make the sort of metaphoric connection and you see from his example what parts of him are in you, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think some of my earliest, uh, well, the earliest stories, my, both my parents were um, religious practitioners. They were devout Catholics. And so I know, you know, obviously many of the earliest stories, uh, if not the earliest stories I ever heard, was as a kid sitting in, you know, church. And... Uh, the education you're given through that early storytelling experience is of parables, you know, how simple stories meant to speak to the sort of universal, if you can pull them off, you know. So in 2016, I decided uh, not to try to make a case for myself through my fiction or write about what I thought I knew in the world, because at that point, I, I realized I didn't really know that much. I just wanted to write. It sounds like depression. It sounds like depression and news media really kicked your ass in to start yeah, this. Yeah. Well, listen, you know, nothing is going to fuel a depression like the news media. You know, uh, I, like I, it's almost like that's what it's used for. Yeah. yeah, right. And uh, I remember uh, one of my favorite quotes Churchill used to use it all the time but uh, I have it written down here it's uh, the quote by Samuel Johnson that says courage is the greatest of all virtues because if you haven't courage you may not have an opportunity to use any of the others and I remember thinking well I'm not feeling very courageous at this point in my life I was feeling a bit kicked down and what's more I didn't see a lot of healthy human avatars for courage you know and so again i wanted to write this parable this story of obviously a sympathetic animal whose virtues people could find in themselves if they you know felt that sort of metaphoric connection to his his situation i, mean, I remember you were a very big animal lover I, I kind of thought yeah. that was going to be the inspiration, like because you had ferrets, you had a whole bunch of like different animals. Well, that is that is true. For as much as uh, Felix the Red was uh, my attempt to sort of say, okay, my personal biography isn't giving me a lot, so maybe I need to step over into some sort of imaginative, uh, you know, metaphoric realm. Having said that, you are right and very good. That's a 10-year memory right there. Yes. <laughs> uh, because we always had an insane amount of animals, uh, including uh, she did not have a hairless ferret, uh, but she did have an albino ferret named Felix. And so I guess... Uh, There's the inspiration never, right there. There you go. A writer can never say that um, they left their biography behind. I tried to leave as much behind as I could, but that ferret made it through. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've always had uh, a terrific amount of animals and, um, and they've always been a real source of sort of comfort for me. You know, I, I was just going to ask, so comfort and inspiration, like uh, that's how I feel with yeah. like animals. Yeah, I mean, but, uh, I'm a very big dog person. It's just kind of hard to put in the words how dogs would make you feel. It's just more yeah. like a peace. So I guess, you know, you, you have that thing 
where um, and I and I can definitely do a better job at this. And I think a lot of people like in general, people could stand to do a lot more of this where, again, this air of sort of acrimony, like people just take to fighting so soon, it seems to me. So I understand that we, we could all benefit from, you know, the Republican learning to see the Democrats point of view, you know, that sort of thing um, to not vilify people or to, to seek to hear what it is they're trying to say, even if you don't disagree. But I have to tell you, the one sort of like line in my life that I can't get around and it's happened a couple of times is when somebody says, you know, I'm at a social function and I'm talking to a stranger and it looks like we're getting on and, you know, we're making it over the political hurdles and we're making it over the the art hurdles or whatever. And then they'll say, well, you know, I don't particularly like animals. Or, Ugh, I don't like dogs. And something in me just is like, who are you? Because you know? <laughs> I, I don't I don't get how anyone couldn't be. Uh, it, it's a, it's an easy gift of living animals are i think because people are complicated you're complicated people are complicated human relationships are complicated but i just you know sitting out in the backyard watching your animals play is how could anybody not like that i know know, it's a very very strange thing to me it's a strange thing a lot of could be upbringing a lot could just be uh, i I don't know you know some people just don't like to try certain new things and obviously I didn't get my first dog till I was 16. So uh, growing up, I was very uh, confused in terms of how animals were. I was like, oh, what, why the hell do people love this so much? But then when I got my dog, I understood completely. <laughs> and it changed my outlook. I definitely could see why that would be the inspiration because just remembering all the animals you had. So, But you know what? You know what's funny about that? Like, I don't even know whether I could write a book about a dog because I love them too much. It's just, it would be like, nah, 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 on the page, you know. Um, but I remember when my daughter had ferrets, they had that heavy musky odor, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which seemed like, seemed like a make or break thing for people. Uh, so ferrets don't get the kind of easy pass, you know, that like a puppy would get. Well, because it's uh, not a super- normal you know, a domesticated animal in a household. Right. So, so, you know, when I thought, yeah, I'm going to write an animal parable and I'm going to try to give it that heft and that complexity and that darkness and that light that you get when you go to hear a sermon in church or whatever. Uh, but I wanted to pick an animal that um, was not an easy thing to love for a lot of people, you know, and I had had them. And I, I used to mark how people responded to them. Some people liked them. You know, there are myriads of ferret lovers, obviously. But some people had a strong, even to this day, you know, I'll have colleagues at the high school where I work. And, oh, congratulations, you, you published a book. What is it about? And I'll say, well, it's called Felix and Red, and it's about a ferret. Ugh, I could just say I just lost a reader. You know, <laughs> uh, And it's always the next sentence or two, they'll mention something about the odor or their sort of herky-jerky movements, you know, they antagonize to some people a kind of easy love that other animals seem to get. And so it was a real intention on my part to, uh, that's the burden of our hero in the story, that, you know, he he's bred for purpose, ferrets uh, in England back in the 1800s, uh, and then well into the, the 1900s, but the story begins in the late 1800s, were bred specifically as hunting animals to ferret down into holes in the earth, you know, and drive up their prey, who were in fact other vermin, rabbits, rats, you know, drive them up to the surface where they could be exterminated, you know. So you had this sort of sad spectacle of one reviled creature hunting down and bringing other reviled creatures to their extermination, you know? Uh, and, uh, I don't know that, that situation, that condition seemed very interesting to me, you know, were you always into animals like that growing up? You know, uh, I was, you know, I, I always liked animals full stop. I was an animals kid, but I have to say that it took 
uh, my daughter, you know, and you probably heard your parents say any number of versions of the same thing. You know, you have a child and it's sort of like childhood part two, you know, now you're observing somebody else's childhood, you're safeguarding it, you're trying to brighten it. And in a weird sort of way, you're, you're living your childhood again, you know, the things you decide to do for your own child, how are they different, different or similar to, you know, what was done with you. My daughter always seemed to have uh, no uh, barriers to her heart, you know? So, uh, yeah, we always had dogs and cats and whatnot, but she was the one who said, can I have a ferret? Can I have a rat? And it's very Can hard to say my- no to a kid, let alone your only kid. I, I, I have yet to be able to do that. So, you know, of course, that's when the door first opened to me, to this other realm of, you know, animals. But I probably wouldn't have ever gotten there. So you were initially her. hesitant, it sounds yeah, you know, again... I'm that sounds really just like good. every suburban dad who's like, oh, we're not getting a dog, and then they end up, you know, that's your best friend at the end of the day. That's kind of what it sounds you know, like. I own that. I, I know that dads, you know, the word is out that dads can be kind of pushovers, and and I like that, you know. I'll do parenting, and I'll say the right things, but I, I liked the fact that my child knew that if she worked me, we could come to a sort of accord, you know, because look, you know, she brought ferrets into my life. At one time, I think we had eight of them. Oh, so that was a oh. powerful odor, you know, <laughs> a powerful sort of marker. Yeah, probably around the time that I was your English teacher, if you got too close, you could smell that musk. I, 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 you know? I do remember. And you know what? I've always been drawn to different. And, you know, whatever makes people happy makes them happy. And clearly you know? the ferrets made you happy. So who you know that and something about uh you know i have to admit i'm a bit of a creature of excess you know a lot of parents i know have been through this and many of them would have said sure you can have a ferret so of course with me it wasn't you can have a ferret it was you could have eight ferrets you know and we had a a rat colony and you know a hundred mice sort of thing uh yeah the letters no did not sound like they would come out of your mouth Yes, yes. <laughs> That's I, what it's sounding I, like. I suppose you have to at some age cop to whether you're a no guy or a yes guy. I'm not a no guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely get the vibe on that. <laughs> but hey, so, yeah, you know, has, uh, it, it was making your daughter happy. I was always very alive with creatures that some people, and again, not everyone, because she didn't, and she had a lot of friends who weren't like that, but some people found them, you know, icky or whatever, and it was that too that was an inspiration you know what yeah you always want to push the buttons of certain people i 100 percent get that you know and everybody likes a hero uh who you know isn't born with a silver spoon in their mouth who has this adversity you know Mm -hmm. you're right about a golden retriever how do you do that everybody loves golden retrievers you know but if you decide just given what you see in the world that the the metaphoric story to tell is of a reviled creature who uh, <clears throat> learns to be heroic and to act heroically, you know, uh, much to everyone's surprise. It's kind of a good story, you know, in a weird way. I would love it if somebody got to the end of Felix the Red and put it down. Parents would hate me for saying this, of course, but I would love that they put down and said, Never thought of getting a ferret. Maybe I'll get a ferret. You know, um, I'm not here to redeem any species. They are already redeemed. But, um, but that's a satisfying thing. You know, to take something that isn't as uh, universally loved as <clears throat> it might be, and you know, coerce people to see how they might have been limited in viewing that species. Because if you could do that then, you know, the metaphor really starts to hold that, you know, this might a- apply more generally to human existence and human experience where we do that, you know, where we decide who is or who is not sort of worthy or heroic or whatever, you know, all the, the problems that everyone deals with every day. Absolutely. Um, what would you, so for the naysayers who are, you obviously you just said before, people are, you know, turned off just already by the name. So what would you say to those naysayers to just try to give it a chance? What would you say? I would say 
I would ask people to be honest with themselves about where truth and beauty have presented themselves in their own life. And to remind them that if their human life is anything like mine, and I know my life is so boring as to be like everybody else's, to me, the answer to that is that beauty and truth rarely comes in packages that announce themselves as that, you know, family love is a difficult thing because family members can present problems that, you know, uh, require determination and strength to get through, you know, adversity and difficulty are in my experience where beauty and truth come from, you know, uh, well, I used to live out in Sag Harbor. I remember when I was working in Sachem, that's where we had all these animals, you know, because we had the, the room for them out there. Uh, I would drive home from my teaching job and I would have to pass along the water out there, you know, by the Hamptons. And if I had stayed at school late, I was doing the drama <clears throat> club back in the time. And so sometimes my day was a long one. I would drive along the water and there were all these cars pulled over and everyone had gotten out of their car and they were taking pictures of the sunset. Now, sunsets are a very beautiful thing. I get that. But sunsets are also, to me, like a Hallmark card. And what's more, how many sunsets can you see before you suspect that one might be very much like the next? Like your golden retriever. They're there to please. You know, a sunset is an obvious pleasing thing. And I used to find myself, I, 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 it's weird to think that when you're driving your car and you're looking at people taking pictures of the sunset, that you're sort of defining your artistic praxis. <laughs> but in a weird way, I was because I remember being frustrated by that. Like, oh, you're just falling for the thing that is obviously beautiful, you know, um, Whereas, you know, maybe the reason I moved back to the city, to Brooklyn, ultimately is, you know, beauty is found and truth is found and inspiration is found in very, very complicated and difficult and even ugly circumstances. You know, uh, I had a family friend who uh, was uh, struggling. It was a friend of my mom's and her child was struggling with drug addiction, you know? And I would say to anybody who said, ooh, why would you write about something as reviled as a, a naked hunting ferret? I would say, well, you know, my mom had a friend and uh, her son became addicted to drugs. And I remember the kid because we were the same age. So we used to grow up together. They would have coffee and we'd play around the backyard. Lovely kid handsome and athletic, easy to love. Uh, And then, you know, we lost touch and we never best friends per se. But anyway, he developed uh, addiction to substances the way so many people do. And I remember going with my mother as an older person to visit this woman who was struggling with her son in detox and struggling with her son in cold turkey and really being dragged through hell by her son and it occurred to me back then and i still remember it i hadn't expected to be talking about it and here i'm talking about it so it sticks with me that to me that was so much a better definition of love than the gifted handsome talented young boy playing in the backyard and the affection his mother must have felt for him at the time For her to prove through such difficult circumstances that she was there for him is, to me, a better example of what is truly beautiful and what is truly truthful and what is truly worth being inspired by. It ain't the golden retriever necessarily or the sunset. And I can watch a million of them. I get it. But if you want to get boring after a while, though. You know, but if you want to tell a story that might touch people's hearts and minds, I want to get in that slipstream of I love you so much that I'm willing to go to hell. You know, um, 
a more intense sort of engagement with these ideas that we tend to just sort of pay lip service to. So when you decide uh, as your inspiration on a thing that is some people find ugly, my Felix is described as having no hair and blood red eyes, thus Felix the Red. Uh, he's branded by his owner. You know, he isn't an animal that anyone would love. And what's more, he does this. He was bred to do this very ugly thing, which is to essentially break the necks of other animals, you know. That is so close to being a creature who many people would say, this isn't worth the investment and or I already give up. But I believe that if you make the investment in that creature and sort of go to hell with that creature, um, the rewards are so much more profound afterward. It isn't the mother's love for the beautiful child. It's the mother's love for the possessed, you know, the abducted, the lost or whatever. Interesting take. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, and that's what I used to say to the landlady when she was asking us why we had eight ferrets. Like, <laughs> Don't you see the beauty in that? Oh, it's the beauty, the smell. Yeah, the, the smell <laughs> is the beauty, right? I'm, yeah. I'm sure that got you some brownie points for the landlord. A couple of times, you know, uh, people would know he's uh, colleagues at work. You know, we'd be out to dinner or something like that. And they'd frequently be smelling my clothes because I either smelled like a ferret or I had rabbit hair on my shirt or, you know. Whatever, because when you're the, just growing up and seeing more normal things, you expect everyone else to be like that. But everyone else is just completely different interests. And, <laughs> and as you get older, you start to realize these things, too. You know? And yeah. Th- I've, yeah, I mean, I've definitely have become more accepting of certain things that I didn't think I would be accepted or acceptable of, you know, back then. So, yeah. It, well, you might remember from uh, being with me in the classroom as my t- student. 10 years ago, but eight years ago, we're not going on 10 years. Eight, yet. Okay. Well, good that, that you've actually made me a little less depressed. Oh, well, but don't worry. Two, two more I, years. will go quick. I, I don't think I, I think my mother might have loved me too much or something. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think I know what normal is. You know, it usually takes someone to, everyone has a different you, definition of normal too, though. You know, it's just, uh, it, it's it, my whole life. I think I've really struggled to be part of the group. I mean, I want to be the most loved and the most accepted. You I know, feel I, that. I'm a real, you know, but I, I never learned the solicitations you're supposed to be willing to do to get those sorts of things, you know, like dress like other people, say the right things or something like that. I, I don't know. I, I think my mom might have convinced me at an early age I was this little princeling. You know, I didn't have to follow the rules sort of thing. You were your <laughs> own spoiled. person. I guess so. Because frequently uh, you know, people will say, do you realize what you're doing? And the truth is I don't. You know, It just seemed like the natural thing for me to do. So I sometimes have to touch the fire to get the burn. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you could answer this fully, but who were <clears throat> authors – that inspired you just growing up? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was, um, if there's any, uh, wisdom or fairness to me being an English teacher now for 20 years, <clears throat> it's that I generally do love books and I've always been a pretty, uh, voracious reader, whatever that means when you're young. But, uh, I remember feeling at an early age, like incomplete if I didn't have a book going, I'm not the fastest reader. And people sometimes think that that sort of interprets to some sort of intelligence. I don't pretend even to be intelligent, but I, uh, I, I like the companionship of a book, you know, uh, from an early age. So I always read quite a bit. I do remember the profound experience when I was very, very young, I could describe to you the design on my mother's couch, the upholstery that it is back in the day, uh, you know, the first day that I finished reading Charlotte's Web, you know. So maybe that's where the affection for animal parables kicked in. But I remember feeling the sadness and the darkness of that, that a spider would give her life for a pig, you know. 
and I was so grateful for it because it seemed so much more um, important or intense than some of the other stuff that I had been reading back in the day. So I always have to give it to E.B. White for sort of like um, opening my eyes to the power of writing when I was pretty young. And then, of course, with more reading and with age, your choices get a little more, you know, sort of aesthetic or articulated. I've always been a huge fan of the books of Thornton Wilder. A lot of people know him as a playwright. He wrote the play Our Town. Uh, which is a wonderful play, but uh, in his lifetime, he was better known, well, he was equally as known as a novelist. He wrote a book called The Bridge of San Luis Rey, which uh, if someone forced me to pick my favorite book, I guess I'd go with that, you know. Uh, As a stylist, uh, as the man who's writing, I would most want to have my own be mistaken for it would be him, you know, like his style. Uh, And then uh, even later on still, I uh, read the work of Richard Adams and Richard Adams is the writer of Watership Down and Plague Dogs, like really heavy duty, intense animal novels, you know, Watership Down is considered by many to be a classic and it's about rabbit activity and plague dogs is about experimentation on uh, canines in England. <clears throat> so I, I would say that that's a sort of rough sketch of it. Uh, E.B. White opened my eyes, Thornton Wilder kind of showed me the way to the, how I wanted to tell stories. And then uh, Richard Adams gave me to believe it was possible. So I, I, I steal from those writers, I think. Top three. That's good. That's good. We always got to yeah. have your top three. Um, you know. what, so I, what I've noticed in more so my generation growing up is reading doesn't seem as, you know, popular, I guess. Yeah. What is your message to people to keep reading or even just to start reading? Well, it's for, it's it's an it's an interesting question, you know. Um, my daughter used to ask me. We used to play a game. My daughter and I, you know, it, it sounds a little perverse. Uh, I apologize for that, but my parenting wasn't very orthodox. Either. <laughs> and, um, it would be like, what would it take for you not to love me? You know, she started it, you know, but she would ask that question. And of course, you, you want to give a child to believe that there's nothing she could do <clears throat> that would make you stop loving her. And <clears throat> the truth is, I believe that. But when we were playing the game, uh, I thought, well, listen, if you ever marry a man who's deliberately cruel, you know, your choice of life partner would irritate me if it's a person who's obviously a cruel person who has no empathy for people, who thinks in terms of categories, you know. Uh, so I said, I, I wouldn't love you if you married a brute, you know, and P.S. Should that day ever come, I'll just learn to live with it because, of course, I would love her. But I threw in later on in her life, right around the time that I was, you know, I don't know, 12 years in the teaching game or 13 years. I threw in, I would stop loving you if you came to me one day and said you ever wanted to be a high school English teacher. Because <laughs> I was like... Have you not been listening to me complaining now for 13, 15 years, whatever? Um, And there's some truth in that. And I'm sure I felt compelled to say that to her one of these days where I came home with this real sense of frustration that it's very difficult to encourage many students to read. Not all, you know, readers are out there. Um, If I'm one, other people must be too. But in general, it seemed to be a hard pull to get students to read. And so rather than uh, just allow myself to be dyspeptic for the rest of my career and just angry about that, I started to turn over what that means, you know. And I do believe that a lot of it is in the choicing, you know. If somebody gives me a book, the only book I'm sure not to read is one that someone recommends to me. You know, 
oh, here, read this book. You, you know, they put it in my hand. It breaks my planning. I hadn't intended it. But they want me to take their word that for the next two or three weeks, this is a ride worth taking. I resist that. And so part of me as an English teacher said, well, maybe it's not that students don't read. It's that they don't want to read the books that I'm telling them, you know, are going to be good for them. You know, like in the time that I've been a teacher, it's been very difficult to have kids read Brave New World or whatever is on the syllabus. But I noticed they're reading Harry Potter you know, and that came and went and made a significant stamp on their lives. And I noticed they were reading Twilight when it came out, you know. So it's not necessarily true that people don't read, at least in my experience, my teacher experience. It's you got to give them something that they want to read. And what's more, more difficult for a writer my age, you know, I'm 56 years old. So there's only so many new tricks you can learn. Like I'd mentioned Thornton Wilder. The thing I love about him is that guy can write a sentence for half a page. The words just float. You know, it's an amazing experience if you learn to read like I did back in the 70s, you know, but we're not in the 70s any longer. And so I get all frustrated by that. And then I see I can't get my students to put down their phone. They're reading 24-7. They're just reading text. They're writing more than any generation must have ever written in the history of the world. But they're not fussing about grammar any longer, and they're not fussing about punctuation any longer. You know, it's a brave new world. So they read a lot, just not what you think is good for them. Or what the school and, tells them to read and right. forces and, on them. And yeah. they read in a certain way. So here's my hope for uh, Felix the Red. Because uh, when it first got published, you know, I put it on my social media, you know, long lasts. That's how, you know... You found me. I can tell you that every day has been a terrific day because I have a handful of students every day sending me pictures. Look, I bought it. You know, they're holding up the book, you know, Uh, and that's a terribly sweet thing they did. You know, they dropped $20 on Amazon to buy their teacher's book. And some of this is students going back 10, you know, 15, 20 years. That's enough. But obviously, the writer in me hopes that some of them open it. And the secret writer in me, the thing that's closest to my heart, hopes to all the gods in the literary pantheon that some of them make it through to the end, you know, because and I have to cross my fingers and say of the two problems with people in reading, they don't want to read what you tell them to read and they read in a different form. I can only hope that I've solved the first problem because to my students, all those ones who've been writing me, I try to figure some creative way of saying, you get no points for this. It's on nobody's syllabus. It's not quote unquote good for you. You know, there will be no test. So this is an elective thing. And here's hoping that if they put down $20 just to kind of sort of get their money's worth, they'll give it a shot, you know? So there's no chain around your neck saying to read this. So my dilemma is that I'm still writing, trying to be Thornton Wilder in those long undulating sentences. And my students are, it's no more or less than reading ever was. It's no better or worse. It's just evolution, you know? But I accepted the fact that I could probably never write a book that reads like a text, you know, that might just capture people because that's the way they experience language. But I'm hoping if the story captures them, then maybe one of the happy circumstances is that they read a book with a sort of more old timey mode of communication, you know, much like the books that I've been struggling to get them to read in classroom. Uh, Maybe, you know, here's hoping we all have our dreams, but that would be the dream, you know, that they would want to read it because they don't have to. And then once they're in it and they think, oh, these sentences are so long and uh, that they might settle into it and realize the satisfactions of that sort of older form of writing. I also here's think hoping. people nowadays, obviously, you you kind of just nailed it. Um, they don't want to be told what to re- read. Yeah. They want to do it on and their own. Why? 
Yeah. Yeah, and you're a teacher. <laughs> right. So that that's saying something like too. If Shakespeare ever came back from the grave, he would be entitled to kick the butt of every teacher, school teacher, whoever ruined his great works for their te- their students. I love Shakespeare. I, I've I've taught Hamlet twenty years in a row, and every time I do it, it leaves me shook. You know, that's how much I love it. But you have to be an idiot not to be able to look out of a classroom and see what is lighting you up is physically putting that child to sleep. Like yeah. I see them, you know, it's, it's that gap. And some of it is, like I said, I'm just hoping it, it it's the delivery system. It's no one wants to be in school. No one wants to be told what to read. Yeah. That's Nobody what I wanted to, to ask you too. Cause you being a teacher for over 20 years, um, how do schools like how do they uh, decide what will go on a curriculum like that, like reading wise? You know, it, it, the 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 most meaningful answer to that, based on my limited experience, I am just one teacher, obviously, uh, is it's profoundly random. You know, so you think they when just kind of pick and choose? Is that your you know, assumption? Everyone does their best. Listen, I'm a proud union member, and uh, when the pandemic first got underway teachers had in my experience one of the rare moments where people seem to be down with being positive about teaching because you had all these parents who now had to teach their own kids i saw a commercial on television and the punchline was all these parents looking dead at the camera and saying we need you you know because if the pandemic showed parents anything about homeschooling their own kids is it's not easy now i've had parents come up to me and say that all right, but if it's not easy for you and your one child, think of how difficult it is for a teacher with 170 kids, you know. Uh, the, the same frustration that you experience with the one is, you know, profoundly multiplied by the many sort of thing. So I think you need to be sort of sympathetic to that, you know. If you show up for work as a teacher, you, you've got my admiration, because it's a difficult job to just show up for. And most of the teachers that I know have been really, really giving of parts of themselves that you wouldn't think a job would require just to try to galvanize 150, 170 kids the way a parent couldn't the one, you know? So I don't have any bashing when it comes to teachers or schools. Everyone's just trying their best. Having said all that, part of trying their best is just people coming up in the English field, which is the one I'm in. When they come up with these things like syllabi or, you know, canonical text or whatever, a lot of it is just keeping a straight face and pretending you know in what you're saying, you know, because... Yeah. Well, you see of it, right? You know, in some states in the union, they forbade the teaching of the very books that would appear on your syllabus in the state you're teaching in. You know, uh, we have a situation in this country where a book that might even be illegal to teach in one place is thought to be essential in another place. So who wins? I just uh, said... Uh, I did Hamlet at the end of the year, so it's fresh in my mind. I've been doing it for 20 decades. A lot of my song and dance is the same old shtick that any teacher tries, which is, you know, this is good for you, or give it a shot. or uh, And it's a struggle, and it's a worthy struggle. But I remembered, for some reason this year, that no one ever told me, taught me Hamlet. Remember, I teach at Sachem North. It's the same high school I went to when I was a student. I wasn't even taught the text that I am now paid to convince students that without knowing these texts, they would have been failed by the educational system. Well, then I was failed by the education system, and I wasn't. You know, uh, my... Uh, my high school so, uh, senior English teacher did not. Uh, and I remember him vividly. He was a remarkable person. And perhaps if he was here, I could ask him, why didn't you do Hamlet? You know, I'm paid to tell my kids that without it, I have failed in my mission. And you certainly didn't fail in yours. So what was behind? 
for all I know back then, it wasn't thought to be necessary, and now it is, so go figure. And what's more, since I mentioned it, he was the guy who put the Bridge of San Luis Rey in my hand. He was the guy who turned me on to Thornton Wilder. So I, there was a lifetime pleasure given to me and in a sort of essential art guide to the artist that I wanted to be was given to me instead of perhaps the thing that somebody nowadays would say was essential to give. How do you measure that? You know? So uh, usually when these things are arbitrated and faculty meetings or whatever, I just tend to space out a bit because <laughs> I try to, you know, when you're trying to beat that, nobody likes to read what somebody else forces in their hand thing. A good way of doing that is uh, talking to your students first about what interests them to read. This past year, for instance, uh, in my senior AP class, we did two titles, Toni Morrison's Beloved and James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk. And neither of them were on Sachem's syllabus prior to this year. But when we got back from the pandemic, uh, I don't want to say the pandemic break, you know, that sounds like a vacation, but, you know, um, what had already occurred simultaneous with the pandemic was the Black Lives Matter movement and George Floyd and whatnot. And that's what they wanted to talk about. And here was me at that point, a 55 year old teacher who'd been doing it for 20 years, suddenly realizing what a travesty that African-American authors aren't represented on our syllabus. You know, there are African-American students sitting in our classrooms, you know. Um, so I underwent the change this year, you know, and I'm no expert and I'm sure I, I largely failed in my mission to get these voices. But I heard my students say that these were the things that they were interested in. And you can tact in another direction to find voices that speak to what they're interested in. And P.S., Toni Morrison's Beloved and James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk were two of the best reading experiences I've had with my students in 20 years because I could feel that they were reading, you know, and that they cared about it. So some of it is just finding something they want to read about that was more common with that was more common within their beliefs at the time and what's just what they can kind of fit into something that provokes where their fears and their aspirations and their uh, dreams lie again writing an animal parable like i did with felix the red is a bit of a cheat you know because most people like we already were talking about, like animals, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's a provocation in, can I stretch that so that you might care about a ferret? Here's hoping. But the reality is uh, uh, there are themes in this book and ideas that I have that I could have very well put into the persona of a person who looked and sounded more like me. But then there's that kid sleeping in the back of the class again. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, if it's about something that they want or need, and that's fair, uh, maybe you have a chance. You know. Yeah. It just you don't you don't know you don't know who you're inspiring yeah. to with the I I feel like with this book and trust me I'm actually going to get around to it. I hope so. I will. I will. Um, obviously, you know, there's all. Praying for the audiobook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you and me both. Now, um, what do you hope to get out of it? Like, what is your personal uh, want in this book? What I, there was a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a practiced answer. You said, like, earlier, who are my inspirations, you know, and I was able to name three. Yeah. Like you said, it's good to have a top three. But the reality is, you know, writers are my heroes and, uh, you know, a lot of them have moved me. I wasn't a very sociable kid, you know, whatever books were my refuge. You know, I was that kid. 
Just like nowadays, up. video games are escapes for people. Reading was your right. escape. And, and again, you could lose a lot of energy and wisdom getting upset that kids are, you know, consumed by their love for video games until you allow yourself to say, okay, but I was consumed by books, equally oblivious to the world. There is not a either or or better or worse. It's how were people able to speak to me when I had my face on the book and try to access that to speak to the child at the video game uh, to let them know of what else is going on in the world, how the world might inform their video gaming or their reading, you know, that sort of thing. But um, to your question, there's a writer, um, John Updike, an American writer. He wrote a, a trilogy of books called The Rabbit Books. There was Rabbit Run and Rabbit at Rest and Rabbit Redux. He was a, 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 a titan of a writer, a writer figure in the, like the 60s and 70s, I guess. Uh, like when he died, you know, the Times had several pages dedicated to not only his work, but the impact he had on other writers, a real giant, you know? And, uh, by the time I caught up with the work, he was already kind of in his victory lap phase. You know, he was an older man, white hair. I remember seeing him on a talk show. Uh, this is just a, he, he's passed now. So, uh, I'm going to say it was like 10 years ago, maybe around the time, you know, you were, in my life or had just come in or gone out. Uh, but I remember he was sitting at a table and the interviewer said to him, what do you want to get out of this? And at the time, you know, what, what does your work mean? You know, like, what do you, what do you hope to get from having written all these books? And uh, at the time, because he was an old guy, the talk was, when are they going to give the Nobel prize to John Updike? because he was so old, he had accomplished so much. Like, why don't they give the highest literary award in the world to this man? You know, why are they, you know, cheating him of this thing? And when the interviewer asked him that question, it was clearly red meat. It was, you know, do you believe you're worthy of the Nobel Prize? You know, that sort of thing, uh, which he never won, by the way. Uh, he died not having it. It hasn't been awarded to him posthumously. Uh, but his answer was that he hoped one day a child who he had never met goes into a library and pulls down a book that he wrote and sits down and loses some time that day just reading the book. And I thought it was like the most magnificent answer. I remember tearing up that this colossus who had every, who had the platform and he had been given the leader question, just go on about how a writer of your accomplishment deserves the Nobel prize. And in fact, if he's to be believed, his idea of reward would be someone he never met was touched by what he wrote. And I think that's where I'm at. It's lovely that students have bought my book. It's lovely that they say it. The book is dedicated to my daughter, Skylar. So that's very satisfying, like a full circle thing. I, I read the book to her aloud in this marathon reading. You know, we cried. It's all been, if nothing else happened but this conversation I'm having with you, that would be enough. You know, it really would because it's all been magnificent, but I'm a greedy person. And if you said, but what, what's left in it for you? The monetization, the, I, I, the monetization probably, right? Well, yeah, that I love money like the next person, but <laughs> the true and the true answer is that a child goes into a library one day and pulls it down from a shelf and reads it, you know? I never knew the authors that moved me personally. I never met them. It was immaterial, frankly. A story captivated me. Quite a lot of this book is set in New Zealand in the late 1800s. Now, why New Zealand? I, just this quick 
the Joes have a factuation with New Zealand? That's a, no. A once upon a time, like the historical inspiration for this book was that my daughter, when she was in middle school, was given a research paper assignment. She could write about anything she wanted. And so she chose ferrets, of course, because we had the eight of them stinking up the place. And we got a book. I bought it. It's on my shelf out in the, the living room now. And there was this little asterisk. We were reading the history of ferrets because she had to basically, you know, lift the knowledge and write a thing. And it was that ferrets in the late 1800s were shipped in great numbers from England to New Zealand. They were bought by the New Zealand Company to colonize uh, New Zealand on behalf of the English crown at the time. And they were sent there because they were exterminating the native pests so that they could begin raising sheep and crops and whatnot. So that's actually a true fact. And something in my mind got like blown at the idea of an entire uh, army, a battalion of ferrets being crated up sent through the Suez Canal halfway around the world to fight in a war for man, you know? Uh, so that actually is a historical fact. I did not know that. So, so I, th- th- thank it, you for that. Right? It, it's like mind blowing. And so if you had ever asked me one, you know, years ago, would you imagine that one day you'll ever write a book pretending to know the first thing about New Zealand, I would have laughed. New Zealand is probably one of the last places I would have thought of ever, you know, I can tell you a deeply, deeply satisfying part of this book. I told you that I was only really able to write during the summers, but what I did to occupy myself throughout the school year when I could steal some time is research. And I never had had to research a creative project before the research is just, amazing about that period you know so the english colonized new zealand by sending hunting ferrets having already oppressed the native morai population into service like suddenly it seems like it's a story that's about more than just ferrets you know it has this like sweep which i never expected it to have you know but again, so the first half is set in England and then the second half is in New Zealand. The training of our hero and then off to his mission. Just like generations of human species have been, you know, carted out and gone off to fight wars elsewhere. Um, I, I, would, I have this fantasy that there's uh, a young woman living in New Zealand roughly my daughter's age when we had first written this research paper about ferrets that inspired me to go back and write a whole book based on what we had found when we did that paper. There's a young woman, uh, 14, 15 years old in New Zealand, who somehow gets a hold of this book about a wildly ugly and unlikable ferret who came to New Zealand and she sees New Zealand. So she's like, oh, you know, it's about me or this country. And has that John Updike moment where she just sits down on the ground wherever she's at and reads it. I think, oddly enough, the satisfaction of writing a book is when it has nothing to do with the people who know and love you and will be there to support you and the money you get from it, you know, and here's hoping it's billions. I'm all for it, you know, but I do have this sort of fantasy that it's when it sort of crosses over, you know, my name is immaterial. This story of this spirit in New Zealand is the thing that touches somebody, you know, I want you to go to New Zealand now with your ferret. <laughs> I think that's my that's dream for you. Listen, I've been trying to persuade those who love me now. We need to get back in the ferret game, you know. We need to sort of do <laughs> the ferret trade. <laughs> you know? Come on. I never had a hairless ferret, but I'm all about it. You know, like how cool is that? I think there I actually believe that in New York City where I'm living now, I think they're illegal 
so like it's not it which just adds to the you know magnificence of it um to have an illegal hairless pet be fantastic i think the smell would give us away though uh more than more than likely i mean <laughs> it, the smell is already potent so you can only imagine how much more potent apartment building living no, no, especially in the city where the city already has enough smells to begin with. So just add on top of that. And, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe I could blame it on that. Blame it on you could. You could. You could blame, you know, oh, that's just the sanitation here. You know, we do have a lot of uh, now, uh, and it, uh, just, it just popped into my brain because one of the, the species that Felix in the 1800s is sent from England to New Zealand to exterminate are the rats that were developing around trade seaports, you know, and um, causing problems and whatnot. Uh, So part of his um, mission is to destroy rats. Uh, And then he has this enormous change of heart, yada-da-da, you know, the hero part of it. But uh, New York, since the pandemic, New York City, that is, you know, now that all the restaurants are out in the street and apparently are going to remain there for a while, there are so many rats running around the street. I believe and it. My daughter, my daughter used to have pet rats. I love them. I have no fear of the rat. I think they're magnificent. All, the, all, the, all the energy to you on that one. <laughs> well, I used to walk to Penn Station in the morning uh, early, obviously, to take the train out to Long Island where the school is located to teach and crisscrossing rats as you walk. I mean, they're just it's like a choreographed dance of rats in the morning. So I'm seeing rats left and right. Perhaps I could bamboozle the authorities into allowing me to get a ferret with the idea that the ferret will do something about the rat population. And then of course, love them both, you know? Yeah. Oh, just the man of, uh, different animal tastes, but Hey, you know, <laughs> it makes you happy, man. That's, that's all that the end of the day that matters is just your happiness. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, you, someone's got to love the unlovable. Exactly. And, and that's exactly you know, that. That's actually a really good way to put it then. Someone's got to love the unlovable. Never really heard of that. Because they clearly know less deserving. And you wonder how much you cheat yourself by, you know, using these measures that that we use, you know, whether they're ingratiating, whether they're appealing to look at, you know. Yeah. The the whole background of my daughter's life when she was growing up with me was – these animals that people consider vermin, you know, <laughs> we were having the time of our lives. So being different is also even better. That's at the end of the day too. <laughs> That's even good. Um, one last question there I have you. for you. Do you yeah. plan on writing more? Uh, to me, and I notice, uh, I'm trying to think, is that your right? You, yeah. Is that the left arm you're leaning on? Yes. I noticed you have tattoos. Yes, I do. I have a whole yeah. sleeve of tattoos, yes. And as you know, if you are a tattoo, tattoo aficionado, as I am. And I am too. Right. Uh, you never get just one. And I remember I definitely had, when when I was done with Felix the Red, I thought, that almost killed me, you know. And it's it's hard. It's any, you know, anything worth it is hard, but it's hard, you know. In this case, this and, is like uh, your life's work, almost. Yeah, I, the part that I was most um, uncomfortable with is the idea that you have to sort of shut out the rest of the world to get it done. Like writing is a private function, you know, and I had some guilt for what am I not doing that I should be doing? It feels like an indulgence, you know. Uh, so I, so the writing was, wasn't as difficult as just allowing myself to write, you know. Uh, so when it was over, I thought, Unless I make a billion dollars, you know, prove it that it was worth it. You know, uh, I'm not going to go back and do it again. And P.S. I'm already writing again. I just can't help it. It's like a tattoo. It's, yep. You know, it's you know, once you get one, like you said, you just keep going. Oh, the piece I've come to is that it keeps me off the streets. You know, <laughs> I have uh, friends who are 
in far better physical shape than I am and they do the gym for an hour and a half, two hours a day. This is what I do to get my sort of like and, sense of sir. You and know? back to it, it's at the end of the day, it's about your happiness. It's your niche and it's what, what it is. It's what's keeping it you is. going. And <laughs> I'm glad to see the positive uh, stuff you're getting from it. I, I like to see that. Um, it's I can't been really, wait. really fortifying. Good. And, you know, that, that should make you feel great. It does. You know, don't don't get oh, don't get over your head there, sir. Let, let's. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I will still be paying rent with my teacher salary. So okay, okay. I, I, there's only so big in the britches you can get, but you know, again, even you reaching out for this lovely conversation is it's just all cake. You know, it's fantastic. So. Good, and I'm glad that we had this conversation, and I appreciate you so much for coming on, even answering. Just an old student. I mean, um, back in high school, you know, you were, and I, I mean this, you were my favorite teacher. So uh, that was, you know, it was even easier for me to reach out to. So that, and that never gets old to hear. It means a lot. It really does. Well, so again, thank you. Yes, and again, thank you for coming on. Uh, Felix the Red is the book. You could purchase it on Amazon and. Uh, yes. Fingers crossed for the audiobook for me. <laughs> but um, go out. I'm here in positive reviews. We had a very interesting conversation with this. Um, and go out, buy it, and uh, keep on listening, everybody, and have a good one.